Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. On Friday, September 3rd, 1982, 12-year-old Johnny Ghosh was attending his older brother's football game with his mother and father. But a short while into the game, like all children, Johnny quickly got a little bored and more than a little hungry, so he asked his parents for a few dollars so that he would be able to go to the concession stand and buy a snack. It was the 1980s, the prime time of Americana, so before some of you go and make judgments regarding Mr. and Mrs. Ghosh's parenting skills, I'd just like to remind all of you creeps listening that suburban America wasn't exactly hardened by the realities of the world yet. It was a time before cell phone cameras and the internet. We had no way of disseminating information as quickly or as widely as we do now, so we can't exactly look back with 2020 hindsight and judge their ignorance. Suburbia was naive and sheltered, with no way of knowing those things which they hadn't seen with their own eyes. The idea of organized pedophile rings on the internet was a dystopian absurdity. The thought that there were predators lurking their streets was a far-off nightmare. That is, it was a far-off nightmare, until Johnny seemed to be taking an uncomfortably long time to return to the seat after visiting the concession. John Ghosh Sr. rose from his seat, I imagine a little agitated that his son couldn't be trusted to return on his own. The idea that Johnny Jr. might be in danger wasn't at the forefront of his mind, but it also didn't take John Sr. long to find Johnny at all. He was simply underneath the bleachers, talking to what was clearly, or at least appeared to be, a police officer. The young boy had merely found himself in a little spot of mischief. John Sr. waved his son back over and the two went and sat back down in their seats to enjoy the rest of the game. There was no perceived danger in a police officer speaking with Johnny Ghosh, despite the oddity of it being beneath the towering bleachers. Once again, I'd like to remind you creeps that this was the 80s in suburban America. The idea that police could also be bad people was a far-off concept for most. Having seen his son talking to the police officer, Mr. Ghosh was probably assured or comforted for that fact, knowing that if his son was being mischievous that their local community police were taking the time to speak with him, and the police officer had clearly made an impression. As the family exited the football stadium after Johnny's older brother's game, Johnny stated that maybe one day he'd like to become a policeman. In hindsight though, without the fog of naivety, John Sr. and Noreen, Johnny's parents, would see that event for what it was. Nothing but red flags and alarm bells. The Ghosh family all woke on September 5th, 1982, to find an average Sunday morning awaiting them. Johnny Ghosh was like many other boys and girls across North America at the time, putting together his newspapers to deliver along his route, taking the flyer bundle and with the other hand expertly opening to the center of the newspaper, before throwing in the flyers and then rolling the paper up and then containing it all with an elastic band, all in one fluid practice motion. At that point, the sun hadn't even risen, 
Johnny was eager to get a head start on his paper route and was already assembling the imposing stacks of paper before his parents had risen from bed. That Sunday was special. Of course, as I said, it was a normal Sunday, and it was, with one exception. The previous night, Johnny had asked his parents if he'd be able to do his newspaper route alone, like a big boy. He was 12, and it was only normal that he was beginning to crave independence. But this is where the story begins to get a little confusing, so from here on out I'll try to be as accurate as I can, and as clear about the events as possible. Johnny's mother, Noreen, the previous night when asked if she and John Sr. would allow Johnny to do his paper route alone, had actually said no. So it's unclear exactly how or why Johnny began his route without his father, John Sr., but he did. But by 7 a.m., the Gauche family home began to receive phone calls from neighbors, wondering where their papers were. Noreen and John Sr. thought their son Johnny had overslept, neglecting his paper route. But when they went to his room to wake him up, he wasn't there. John Sr., I imagine still not worried but a little annoyed, put on a light jacket and walked out the front door to find his son. But instead of finding Johnny, all John found was his abandoned wagon, filled to the brim with papers only two blocks from their home. It looked as if Johnny had simply walked away from the papers and wagon. There was no sign of a struggle and apparently no one had seen or heard anything. This would later be used by the police to dismiss important details and witness statements. Johnny Gosh wasn't the absent-minded type, nor was he the mischievous break-the-rules-just-because-you-can sort of kid. The paper route wasn't for fun. He had been saving for a dirt bike which he wanted desperately, nor had he just gone off to play with friends in the middle of delivering papers. He'd left the house before 7am, there were no other kids up and out in the street playing. And then there was the family dog, a dash hound that Johnny usually took with him while delivering papers. That dog, of course, arriving back at the Gauche family home later, without Johnny. Whatever had happened to Johnny, both John Sr. and Noreen, Johnny's parents, knew something was wrong. The rose tint of suburban life in the 80s was beginning to wear thin. John Sr. returned home and told Noreen with dread in his voice that Johnny was nowhere to be found. Noreen immediately picked up the telephone and dialed the police, while John Sr. ran out to finish delivering the papers quickly. Now, you might be wondering why John Sr. would care about something so trivial as delivering the remainder of the papers. Why, when he had to assist in searching for his son. This being a point that I've seen floated around the internet, but honestly, between you and I, it seems like the most typical of dad moves. Johnny Jr. might have been somewhere along the route. Delivering the papers gave John Sr. a chance to canvass the neighborhood while asking if anyone had seen his son. And that's not to mention the over-eager phone calls to the Gauche family home, asking where their newspaper was. At a time like that, John and Noreen would clearly want to keep the telephone line open. And then there was the scenario where Johnny might just arrive home, having neglected his duties to go play. John Sr. would be able to reprimand him while also ensuring his son didn't lose his paper route. While John Sr. was finishing up the paper route, police finally arrived at the home. According to Noreen, the police took a total of 45 minutes to arrive, despite the police department being a mere 10 blocks away. And when they arrived, they had already decided. Johnny was a runaway. Nothing more and nothing less. Despite what the police initially thought, and continued to think, 
or how much they tried to tell Noreen and Johnny Sr. that their son had run away. It became clear, to Johnny's parents at least, that Johnny had been abducted. Both Noreen and John Sr. began in earnest to track down and alert their neighbors of what had transpired, asking anyone and everyone if they had seen anything suspicious, and their efforts didn't go unrewarded. One of the Gosha's neighbors was a man named John Rossi. When asked by Noreen and John Sr., John Rossi told them that he'd seen Johnny at some point previously giving directions to a man in a car, which looked to be a blue Ford Fairmont. Johnny had deferred to John Rossi, asking if he would be able to help the stranger with directions, but the second he did so, the driver made an abrupt U-turn and sped through a stop sign without stopping. And John Rossi hadn't been the only neighbor to see the blue car either. Multiple people, although it's unclear how many, also reported seeing 12-year-old Johnny giving directions to a man in a blue Ford Fairmont. Of course, since it was the 80s, John Rossi later would have hypnosis performed on him to try and see if more details would come to light. But those details, if there were any, were never made public or spoken of after the event. Regarding the event with the man in the Ford Fairmont, Johnny had reportedly told other paperboys in the neighborhood that the man had creeped him out. According to a statement given to a reporter by Noreen Ghosh in 2010, the guy shut off his engine, opened the passenger door and swung his feet out on the curb right where the boys were assembling their papers. And he started talking about where's 86th Street. Johnny turned to Mike and said, I've got my papers loaded in the wagon. I'm scared. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to head home. The man pulled the door shut and started up the engine, but before he left, he reached up and flicked the dome light three times. Then he pulled out and left. According to Noreen Ghosh, the driver had turned their cabin light on exactly three times, which would have been his signal to a co-conspirator, and to corroborate, at least anecdotally, what she believed a paperboy present at the time had reported that he'd seen a tall, thin man walking between the homes after the man in the blue Ford Fairmont had approached them. That is who Noreen believes kidnapped Johnny. Aside from the Gauches, there was little else in the way of investigative inquiries. To say the police department was not up to the task would be a very kind, diplomatic euphemism, devoid of a few curse words. In 1982, there was a general attitude that if a child was missing, it was a runaway. To compound that attitude issue, there was also usually a mandatory waiting period before the police would launch an investigation into the whereabouts of missing children. In the future, those policies would be repealed and revised thanks to legislation put forth by the Ghosh family, but that would do them little good in the moment when they needed it the most. But neither of these reasons quite begin to fully describe the level of incompetence and indifference that the West Des Moines Police Department showed in their handling of the case. According to a Lieutenant Jeff Miller, police did start their search immediately despite the 45-minute, 10-block drive through the bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic of a quiet suburban neighborhood stating. They went ahead and called in the staff, the troopers, they called in detectives, reserves, contacted Polk County sheriffs, the state patrol. At that point, they did a door-to-door -door canvas of that neighborhood trying to find someone who saw something of Johnny. Then the police continued to search the woods but they were looking for a child off fooling around or potentially with a sprained ankle unable to get home in time, possibly even a runaway as their worst-case scenario. The search by admission was a lazy search. 
They were absolutely unwilling to admit that it had been a potential abduction. So the neighbors of the Ghosh family and the community began to help, but the police sternly put such efforts down as if it were some revolt against their aptitude. Orival Cooney, the police chief at the time, drunkenly stood on a picnic table and using a megaphone to amplify his message to the 20 volunteers gathered at the park to help conduct a search, he screamed into it telling the group of volunteer searchers to go home because Johnny was just a damn runaway. Just a damn runaway. That's a direct quote. Of course, the same Mr. Cooney would be forced to leave the department with his head hung low, in part to his absolutely shocking inability to perform his job, and his embarrassing alcoholism which was never a quiet or functional addiction for the man. Then to top it all off, Noreen and John Sr., two grieving parents, desperate to find their child, put forth the idea of missing child posters of Johnny in 1983 in the Hall of Law, but they were also given a very firm and emphatic no by the police department. Noreen would later say, We approached them to ask if we could bring out a quantity of missing posters, hoping someone might remember something and call with info. They refused, saying it would be a downer for fairgoers. For quite a period of time, there was mass speculation in the community following the case locally into the mental well-being of Noreen Ghosh. To put it less delicately, was she mentally unstable, or could she have had something to do with her son's disappearance? There were also conspiracy theories surrounding John Sr. and why exactly he had felt it necessary to finish the paper route. But were those conspiracies just that? the words and ideas of those too far removed from the case and the resulting grief. It would tragically be the disappearance of more boys that would finally lend credence to the Gauche's claim that their son had been kidnapped, and in large silence most of those deluded and uneducated theories. Unfortunately, creeps, you'll need to wait till next week to continue the story. It's been one year since the podcast started, and to commemorate our podcast birthday, this will be a multi-episode case, so hold on tight. We're in for a bit of a journey. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every 5-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors.